0: support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at texasmutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, Turmoil in the Attorney General's office is ripping apart the Medicaid fraud division. And with abortion on the ballot, Annie's List sees 2024 as a big year to elect progressive women. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is frequently in the news for his personal legal problems, his impeachment... The lawsuits that he files to keep women from getting life saving abortions, and for his lawsuits against the Biden administration. But rarely does the public get a chance to learn about how well the Attorney General's office is performing its core functions. A story from the Texas Tribune and ProPublica shines a light on the AG's civil Medicaid fraud unit and finds that it's falling apart under the leadership of Paxton. And it could be costing Texans millions and millions of dollars. I spoke with a reporter who uncovered the story, Viana Davila.
1: Sure, most people voting for Paxton have never heard of the civil Medicaid fraud division. Um, in the life of the attorney general's office, it, it's relatively new. It's been around about uh, a little more than 20 years. Um, and what they are doing, it's in the name. They are looking for companies People that have abused the Medicaid system, the Medicaid system, it's for, such you know, low income people, it's often pregnant women and children who are using Medicaid or benefiting from Medicaid. And so they are looking for companies that have defrauded that system. So this, you know, this was serious. This is both financial, but this is also potentially, you know, medical, uh, you know, people who can be affected by the use of drugs and maybe they, they shouldn't be using children that can be affected. And so, you know, this is a huge part of what an attorney general does. They're the lawyer for the state. Um, And so they're defending, you know, Medicaid is a federal and a state program. They're defending the use of those dollars. And so Civil Medicaid Fraud Division was, I think, by any measure, highly successful in recovering funds that had been taken from the state. Um, They have helped recover, you know, $2.6 billion in the last two decades. That's money that goes to the feds and the state, but for the state itself, they've helped recover about $1 billion. Um, and, and for the AG's office itself, you know, they've also helped recover, you know, tremendous amount of money over that time.
0: And you're reporting that the Civil Medicaid Fraud Office, which had been seen as a bright, shining star in the AG's office doing a bang-up job, really getting it done, recovering billions of dollars, as you said, for the state, also protecting the people in the state from uh, bad actors in the system. But now this now this division seems to be off the rails.
1: Yeah. I mean, they had been really growing as a division. They, they had a huge jump in 2007 where their numbers um, I think they grew by 40 attorneys, something like that back then. And they have been pretty steady, you know, between 30 and 40, roughly, attorneys in that unit since Paxing took office in 2015 until early 2023. And we start to see this exodus of attorneys in 2023, about two-thirds of the unit, um, which, you know, we have never seen the likes of before, that many in that short period of time. And it seems to have followed, um, you know, effectively, the dismissal of their longtime chief, Ray Winter, who in November 2022 was essentially told, we are making a change in this division, um, but his team was not really given any reason why. And you can either take a demotion, you can resign, or uh, one of my uh, sources told me, or or you can be fired. And so He chose to resign and his unit uh, seemed to follow in turn and 19 attorneys quit in 2023.
0: The loss of Raymond Winter. We just talked about what's going on in the office and his the loss of his his leadership, and then um, he was seen as someone who was a a very good attorney and he knew this area very well, had a high level of expertise and institutional knowledge, something very difficult to replace.
1: Exactly. I mean, he had been there. He was not the original leader of the division, but he'd been in there. I think at least since the first or second year of the division. So that's your know, twenty I I guess when he left, roughly twenty-two years experience. This is really complicated work. And so he had hired really all of the attorneys who or, or played a part in hiring, um, who ultimately left last year. He had built the team from something very small, helped build the team from something very small to to what it was now. And, you know, he we able to muster a lot of loyalty from his team. They really, you know, what I heard again and again about Ray was character. he He just had tremendous character and tremendous skill. Uh, one person told me, like if you were in the trenches, you wanted rape to fight you. You know, that was the kind of leader he was.
0: The loss of him also was a loss of prestige for this office. makes it very difficult to recruit young attorneys who want to do good work. Uh, Then that leads to the losing of cases and the loss of recovery funds and effectiveness for this office.
2: And
1: I think, and I think that's to be seen what happens. I I think they have not been able to replace the attorneys at the rate at which they are leaving. Like I said, nineteen attorneys left, and now in twenty twenty three now there are nineteen attorneys in the unit as opposed to thirty one at the beginning of last year. So. So they, they've recovered some, but it's clearly not the same. And these are attorneys who, so sure, they're very skilled. It's just everyone I've talked to says this takes a really long time to learn how to do this type of litigation. It's very complex. You're going against, often, big pharmaceutical companies who have deep pockets and can hire not just one law firm, but multiple law firms. Uh, the state can't do that. Um, you know, I've heard you know on a big case in the past, you might have eight to ten attorneys at different times working on it. Now, maybe you're, you're lucky if you have one to two, you know, with the numbers they have. So it's to be seen how the recoveries will be affected. Um, often these cases take so long and settlements can take a while that uh, the money that's coming in even this past year reflects past cases. So it may take another, you know, one or two years to see do the recoveries actually slow down, but everyone I've spoken to seems to think that this will happen. And again, that matters because the money goes back to the state and to the AG's office, you know, and it's well above what the budget of this unit is. I think the budget of the unit is 4.9 million, you know, they're pulling well above that.
0: So let's jump lanes here and look at Paxton with his uh, personal Mm -hmm. legal problems where he had attorneys who were whistleblowers in the AG's office. And it led to his impeachment uh, and then his acquittal and is also what was going on with his lawsuits. Um, Raymond Winter is was not is not a whistleblower in this case, right?
1: Right. No, he had nothing to do with that. Um, he was there in the agency when in twenty twenty a number of taxi top lieutenants basically raised the alarm and went to the FBI about what they believed is his misconduct. Um, and several of them quit, and several of them were fired. Uh, Raymond sort of survived that, but was not a withdrawal. But it
0: does seem like Paxton was on the lookout for anyone who might be disloyal to him in the AG's office, and maybe his gaze fell upon Raymond Winter because of his character and uh, his track record of success. He had been rewarded for doing so well in the office. and. Maybe uh, Paxton thought that uh he had to go.
1: Um, I, I would love to, to ask the attorney general those questions. Um unfortunately they did not respond to our request for interviews or uh many questions that we sent them. But you know, what we do know, uh, we have one of the whistleblowers named David Maxwell Jr., uh spoke to House investigators this past year and he actually brought up uh Ray and said that um it's a little complicated, but essentially uh, after Ray was, or, excuse me, after Maxwell was fired from the agency that Ray was asked to essentially defend the agency's rating. Law enforcement officers, which Maxwell is, when they are discharged from state office, they are given a rating, kind of like a military rating, honorable general, dishonorable discharge. That has actually changed recently, but it was in place for Maxwell. And um, the AG gave him general, which is not considered good and he wanted to challenge it. And so the state asked uh, Winter to defend that. And apparently he declined. We don't know exactly why, but uh, Maxwell said, I, I think this was essentially seen as as not uh, bending the knee to, to Paxton. And he said, you know, Paxton has totally done the state of the agency with good people that he's gotten rid of because of the criteria to get hired in the executive level is to plead your allegiance to him, not to the agency or not to the law. Um, And and we do know from from various, you know, documents and records that after this whistleblower event happened in 2020, Paxton hired a whole new group of people, as as another whistleblower put it, and and sealed off access to the executive floor, as how uh, whistleblower Mark Penley put it. So you do get the sense of a sort of circling of the wagons and you were either in or you were out. and. I do get the sense that Winter, for all his sort of professional accolades, was not in that inner circle. What happened after that, you know, we don't exactly know.
0: Viana Davila is an investigative reporter with the Texas Tribune and ProPublica. Her story is, under Ken Paxton, Texas Civil Medicaid Fraud Unit is falling apart. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, there's a growing interest in politics from a new generation of women. And there's the impression that in 2024, it will be a year that ushers in a new class of these women into running campaigns and getting elected into public office. Annie's List works to recruit, train, and elect progressive women in Texas, not just at the Capitol, but at all levels of state and local government. The organization just turned 20 years old, and in that time, they've raised over $20 million and have helped candidates win over 160 races. Anna Ramon is the executive director of Annie's List, a statewide political action committee.
2: It feels as if there's a generation of women who are seeing what's happening in Texas and realizing that does not represent them and their values. So across the state, working with women all the way from ages so 24 on, we're seeing this, uh, this in kind of like a A generation of candidates wanting to take back their communities so everywhere from Dallas to Harlingen to uh, Houston it's just been so phenomenal to see women stepping up and saying like it's my time and the government right now of Texas does not represent me or my values
0: so uh, Annie's List how do you see yourself helping women run for public office
2: no uh, well What's exciting at Annie's List, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, and we have just hit a milestone of helping over 190 women, 91 women, um, find their way into public office, but also spend over $20 million doing that in Texas. So of course, it has to start with the dollars and supporting women financially. But the other part is making sure that they're trained. So we have an entire training apparatus now that last year we were able to train in cities across the state and in about 25 to 30 trainings, we trained over 140 people, 60% of them women and women of color to look at where their paths are. So a lot of it has to start in this pipeline of building candidates from school board to city council to commissioner to state house, all the way up. And then giving them those tools to begin their journey. And that's when our Annie's List arm comes in to hopefully fund their races, especially on the state house level, where we're seeing opportunities to move the chamber and the legislature in ways that we haven't seen in a few years.
0: How well or not well represented are women in Texas?
2: Unfortunately... Women in the state house don't make up a third yet. Uh, we are working towards that milestone. Uh, but what is exciting? What a
0: third? Why not half?
2: <laughs> oh no, uh, just yet. Like so, that's the the current number of like there's less than a third of the house of the state legislature are women. Uh, but what we're working towards is pushing to that milestone, and then of course the next milestone would be half of the chamber. Okay. So we're we're taking a step by step approach. But what is exciting is we have seen over the last ten years a positive trend for Democratic women in particular who could potentially take over the Democratic House uh, caucus and have more women ever before in the Democratic House caucus. So there is a wonderful trend. And what we also know is voters trust women. So there's uh, the reality of the electorate in a presidential year is 60-40 women gender split. And you also have that trend in off cycle. So the reality is like women are stepping up and voting and now we wanna help women step up and run and then ultimately uh, move the chamber in the legislature and across the state.
0: Well, in my experience, I see a lot of women running Texas politics at the grassroots level, Mm -hmm. uh, at the county party level. You go to these events, and it's usually women who are in charge, women who are making the phone calls, who are getting things printed. They're making things happen. Um, And this is in both parties. Yes. Uh, So uh, that seems to be like, wow, what a great backbone that that is there. It's just not what? Not being built on?
2: What's, uh, I think there's two folds here. One is, you're absolutely right. Uh, even in my upbringing in the legislature, after doing five legislative sessions and multiple election cycles, it was women and particularly women of color who helped push me into that now this role as executive director. So you have those women on kind of the back end doing the work the day to day. But it takes about what we understand six to seven times to really ask a woman to run. There's this feeling of disqualification, not being prepared, having to put family first, a lot of barriers that exist for women. And so our job is to help kind of dismantle some of those existing barriers and real barriers, but also the barriers that are kind of like, unfortunately, buried in our hearts (laughs) about lifting ourselves up into power. So women often face barriers that a traditional male candidate, you know, doesn't have to typically work through. And that's something that we're trying to do at Annie's List and other organizations like Emily's List and Emerge. There's many organizations trying to push women up. But when it comes to um, what you just talked about, which is the pipeline, like you have people and women running for judge, running for council, running for school board. And we really want to see that pipeline of women get pushed up into the legislature, into Congress, into commissioner seats. Because as we've seen, when women women run and lead, we can win. And that's really exciting. You know, unfortunately, uh, the reality of Texas and campaigns is you have to raise and spend money. It's often harder for women to spend or to raise. And in Texas, we are as elections are becoming more and more expensive. So barriers like that exist. But I think this is why Organizations like Annie's List and others are so critical at this point in time. We know voters trust women. We know voters, especially in the Latino community and collectivist communities, they want to have that matriarchal. They want to have that woman leading them. And so let's take that from our households and have those women who have the natural leadership skills, who have everything, to then lead in our bodies and places of power where they can do so much good. So organizations like Annie's List, we've had 20 years. I'm looking for the next, hopefully the next 20 years of helping uplift another generation of women. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head. We need to support women to run for office.
0: But um, so generally speaking, looking at survey data, we can tell that many women voters vote thinking about what's best for their families, their, their, their family issue driven voters. And uh, when I say family issues, I mean things like um, support for public education, uh, support for food security, housing security, uh, and he- access to health care. And even today, you know, uh, bodily autonomy yes. uh, because of the uh, Texas ban on abortion and this uh, strict adherence to uh, sacrificing the life of the mother yeah. for, uh, in, a, in a troubled pregnancy that we have in Texas. Is that are these all going to be issues that can activate a women voters, a base of women voters, which um, because these are the main issues that are, could be driving this uh, this election?
2: Absolutely. I think there always are the evergreen issues of health care, education and job security and the economy. But this generation and in this period of time what we're dealing with was like the most extreme agenda that we've probably seen in decades in Texas the re- the reality is women are being forced to carry and forced to have children, even after cases of rape and incest. And that is not a reality that women want to live in. That's not a reality women want for their families or their children. But that is the agenda that has been set forth from the governor to the state reps in this state. And what we've seen across the country, not even just in Texas, is that Republicans are fearful of the abortion issue. They put themselves in that box and now they're having to deal with it because the reality of all of this is they did not listen to the hours and hours upon hours of testimony and the fears that were given to them by not only women and families but doctors and professionals about what these kinds of bills would do and that's just one instance of extremism you're dealing with the fact that we've been brought back over and over again the legislature for expensive sessions for vouchers that nobody wants we have done nothing to do or attend to the issue of gun violence in the state which overwhelmingly has support and we haven't even expanded Medicaid where other Republican states have letting vulnerable children and mothers and families on the table and don't even get started on CPS foster care, which has a federal case against them. So the governor and the legislature right now, led by Republicans, in my perspective, have left families and mothers and children on the table of Texas. And that's devastating.
0: But we're seeing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who has all of his own personal legal issues, fighting in the Supreme Court to keep uh, the Biden administration from administering uh, life-saving therapeutic abortions for women who are in emergency rooms. He wants those women not to live if they're having a troubled pregnancy, and that is the policy of this administration. And I don't see how any woman or any person in Texas can uh, process this policy and not be fearful.
2: Unfortunately, fear is something that I think is a powerful driver, and that's why having, in our perspective, women like who we are seeing step up and wanting to run and fight back against this agenda is more critical than ever because you've just laid it out. You have men making decisions for women, entire families entire like, entire state that is complete opposite of what will protect us, will help us, will create a healthy community and really drive away not only lives and like hurt people physically, but talk about the impacts on business. Talk about the impacts on what this means for Texas. We're going to have an issue with attracting doctors, keeping healthcare professionals, bringing in Fortune 500 companies because of the attacks that we've laid out on women, families and like important communities like the LGBT community and communities of color. So that is the agenda they've laid out. And you're absolutely right. Having people that represent us on the ballot, who understand our issues, who have the lived experiences, is so critical at this point in our juncture, because Texas has everything to move in the right direction. We are one of the most competitive state legislative chambers in flipping and moving, of course, over time and over period in the nation. We compete with four other state legislatures in movement, and that's because we have the population, we have the interest, and now we have, in my opinion, amazing candidates stepping up and running and who want to fight against people like Ken Paxton, who has done nothing, but create consternation and uh, division and expensive fights that are unnecessary and only going to continue to harm people and Texans will continue p- to pay with their bodies and their lives.
0: Anna Ramon is the executive director of Annie's List. In today's world, not having access to the internet puts someone at a marked disadvantage They're essentially unable to compete in the economy as a consumer or as a small business owner. They're also hobbled in their education opportunities, either trying to do schoolwork or learning coding or other marketable skills on their own. This is why there is the Affordable Connectivity Program, the ACP, which is a federal program to help low-income people afford quality internet. In Texas, almost 1.7 million households are enrolled in the Affordable Connectivity Program. That's about one in seven households in the state. And Texas has received over $822 million in funding from the Affordable Connectivity Program. That means Texas families are saving about $45.6 million total each month. Tom Pettis is the White House Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. He says the ACP is part of the Biden administration's effort to expand economic opportunity in rural America.
3: 23 million, roughly, uh, households have saved 30 to $75 a month on their Internet bills as a result of the Affordable Connectivity Program. And, and to be specific about Texas, it's about 1.6 million households across every congressional district. IN TEXAS THAT HAVE uh, BENEFITED FROM THIS CRITICAL PROGRAM, BUT THE PROGRAM WILL RUN OUT OF MONEY um, AS SOON AS APRIL THIS YEAR IF CONGRESS DOESN'T ACT NOW. And THAT'S WHY THE FCC CHAIRWOMAN uh, WROTE TO CONGRESS uh, TO um, INFORM THEM, AMONG OTHER THINGS, THAT AS OF uh, THE EIGHTH OF THIS MONTH, WE'RE NOT GOING TO BE ABLE TO ACCEPT NEW ENROLLMENTS uh, BECAUSE OF THE FUNDING UNCERTAINTY. AND, I don't want us to run out of money, this is essential. Uh, this program uh, was adopted on a, a strong bipartisan basis in 2021. And um, I really believe that internet is like water. It's an essential public need that needs to be affordable and accessible to everyone. And high-speed internet. You, you can't do telemedicine in Texas or anywhere unless you have high-speed internet. Um, how do you run your business? Uh, if you don't have high-speed Internet? Um, how do you access uh, school if you got to do Zoom again uh, if you don't have high-speed Internet? This is simply essential. And I hope Congress, again, in a bipartisan fashion, uh, reauthorizes this and ap- appropriates the money that's needed uh, to maintain this program.
0: Many people people may not even know that there is this affordable connectivity Program the ACP, and so they haven't applied for it, uh, and they may not even know if they're eligible for it. Who is eligible?
3: Sure, if you are at two hundred percent or below of the poverty limit, you can. You are eligible for this program, and uh, the the subsidy ranges from thirty to seventy five dollars. So if you're at two hundred percent of poverty, uh, you're going to be getting probably closer to $30 a month. If you're at 100% of poverty or or below, um, you're probably going to be getting closer to $75 a month uh, in a subsidy. That's real money. You know? I mean, it, just take the midpoint of that. R- roughly $50 bucks a month is uh, uh, $600 a year in savings on your internet bills. And uh, again, internet... High-speed internet, quality high-speed internet is an essential element uh, for families, communities, educators, healthcare providers. Um, we need to make sure that um, everybody in Texas uh, can access these this uh, connectivity, not just folks who can afford it.
0: Well, we have big parts of Texas where internet connectivity is a challenge. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley, uh, East Texas, uh, the Panhandle, parts of these very uh, rural areas, um, and even some high-populated but low-income areas. So, does this apply to to these places as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are every single county um, in uh, in Texas. There are people who are getting this subsidy. I mean, you you've hit the nail on the head, David. Um, this program has. Expanded access for everybody across the state of Texas. You know, 1.6 million households. That's about one in seven households in in the state. Uh, and so, and, and Texas already has received over 800 million dollars in funding from the Affordable Connectivity Program. And uh, and and what that means in plain English is that. Texas families are saving about $45 million a month. Low, Lower income Texas families are saving about 45 million bucks a month uh, from this investment. Uh, we've got to maintain it. Uh, it's, it's, it's essential moving forward. And, and last fall is when the Biden-Harris administration sent Congress uh, the supplemental budget request for $6 billion to extend funding for the program. I hope we can work together in a bipartisan fashion as we did before on this investment uh, because th- this shouldn't, it's its just not right to play politics with this and we hope that uh, we can get through this. But we've gotta do it soon because again, February the 8th, a week from now, they're gonna stop taking new applications. And then if the funding lapses in April, um, people are gonna lose that critical subsidy.
0: Tom Pettis is the White House Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. You can apply for the Affordable Connectivity Program online by mail or by contacting your current internet company. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can download, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get good podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.